Let me encourage you, if you would, to take your Bibles and turn with me in your Bible to the 53rd chapter of the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah. I came to church this morning and someone asked me, he said, David, how do you feel? And uh, I said, I feel sorry for the people of Christ church. <laughs> but uh, it is always a privilege uh, to minister. It's interesting uh, that our pastor, he's not here, I'm sure he's listening, and I'm, I'm surely going to get into trouble for what I'm about to say. Uh, <clears throat> but I'm going to risk it anyway. He's such a nice guy. Uh, but he gave me a call yesterday, and you have to remember that Fred is one of those who always plans ahead, and he's always got this schedule for those of us when we're going to preach. Uh, he, uh, Jason, myself, Kurt, he always lines up way ahead of time when we're going to be preaching. And I'd been on the schedule to preach this Sunday evening for some time. So no problem, that sermon's prepared. Been studying it, working on it. Of course, there's a sense in which I never feel like I'm ready. I don't care how much I've studied. And so uh, here I am. And, uh, but at the latter part of the week, as we all know, Pastor Wagner is exposed to COVID and out of respect for the congregation, does not want to run the risk of exposing anyone else to the same so he sees it necessary not to be here, and that's why I'm filling in for him this morning. And so Fred gives me a call yesterday, sensing the great burden upon yours truly. He says, David, I tell you what I'm willing to do. I'm willing to come off a of vacation and preach for you tomorrow evening. <laughs> I thought to myself, Fred... That sermon's already prepared. <laughs> anyway, that's Fred. But uh, I'll probably get in trouble for telling that. But nonetheless, he, he's a great guy. Let me encourage you to look at God's Word from the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. But really, I want to begin reading this passage in the remaining few verses of chapter 52. Actually, beginning with verse 13 of Isaiah 52, reading through to the end of chapter 53. Dear people of God, hear from the word of God. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected 
by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced or wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed or bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever." I'm going to bow and ask God's blessing upon the ministry of this word. But dear people, I'm going to ask you to pray with and for me that God would be pleased this morning to feed you from this, his holy word. Let us pray. <clears throat> oh, Holy Father, once again, we bow before you in the felt consciousness of our need to cry out to you, for the gracious assistance of your Holy Spirit, that as we come to this portion of your word, we may not treat or tread through it in some kind of clumsy and half-hearted way, but that we might be aware together that we are walking upon holy ground. 
Bring us, we pray, to this passage with hearts that are purged from anything that would grieve your Holy Spirit or stand in the way of our understanding and obedience to our duty. Grant us, we ask, that we may ponder together these great mysteries of our Savior's obedience, even unto death, and that in doing so our own hearts may be drawn out in fresh and copious measures to love, adore, and worship our great God and King, giving thanks for the obedience unto death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hear us, we pray, and in every sense be our teacher in this hour. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now I want to mention to you, as I did in the email last night, that I want to begin the series this morning that I'm going to continue as opportunity is extended to me to preach a series of sermons on the message of Christ crucified. And this morning, we're going to look at the message of Christ crucified as set forth in prophecy, as we see it in prophecy. You may recall that it was our Lord's habit again and again when addressing the Jewish leaders and his own disciples to cite the prophecies concerning himself from the Old Testament scriptures. And he would tell them that this is where they would discover the truth about him, that the scriptures were the place that they ought to search about the things foretold of him. So this is the source, most notably, to which he directed his disciples, of whom he also encountered, you may recall, that day on the road to Emmaus in what was a post-resurrection appearance. And on that occasion, as they were grieving the death of our Lord, and they said, we thought that it was he who was going to redeem Israel, and now he's died, and three days have passed since he died. And our Lord says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And then it says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then later that day, in another post-resurrection appearance, he said to a group of his disciples who had gathered together, these words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And then he said to them, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. So here our Lord Jesus is seeking to do the very thing that I desire for all of us to do 
this morning to open the Scriptures and to show ourselves from them the prophecies of Scripture, how the sufferings of Christ are there for in, or therein foretold for our instruction. Now then, there is no passage in my understanding that any more graphically sets before us the essence of the prophecies concerning the suffering of Christ than the one which I read in your hearing from the 53rd chapter of the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah. And it is, of course, in reference to this passage that our Lord Jesus, in the days of his flesh, pointed to repeatedly. It is a passage, I think, to which every thoughtful Christian should come with a real sense of hesitation and diffidence in that there's a reluctance there. And I think there's, it's good reason that we have reluctance in coming to this passage because if we were to liken the scriptures as some have done to the temple, this chapter would surely rate right up at the top as being among the holy of holies. Not only because it leads us into some of the deepest mysteries of our Lord's sufferings, but also because this was doubtlessly an area of Holy Scripture upon which our Lord Himself meditated in a very special way. It was here that our Lord speaks of the great must of His ministry. For I say to you, this is that this which is written must be accomplished in me. And then he says, he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus himself identified this prophecy as speaking of himself. And so our Lord clearly and immediately before his suffering and death had at different times been focusing upon this particular passage in the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah. Now, the later prophecies of Isaiah, beginning with chapter 40, has sometimes been called the book of consolation because they begin with those familiar words, comfort ye, comfort ye. Yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem. Those words have been put to music and underscored in a particular way in Handel's Messiah. Now, the reason why God's people were in special need of comfort at this particular period is something we understand when we discover that Isaiah's vision carries him across time to see the bondage that the people of Israel were going to undergo and endure in Babylon. And Israel was carried into captivity. And when they were carried into captivity, everything in the aftermath of that was left in ruins. Jerusalem was in ruins. They had no home, no king, no temple. And what appeared to them at that time, no prospect whatsoever for a future. And there was surely a haunting consciousness of the reality that God had addressed His people time and time again in tender, persevering grace, warning them against the sheer 
folly of turning their backs upon God. And they had painfully discovered to their own shame and dismay that God's words were not idle words, but that what He said He would do and that what He prophesied would surely come to pass. And here they were in bondage and Babylon in ruins and contemplating upon their own despair. And when someone would cry to the people of Israel, sing to us one of the songs of Zion, as we read about that in the 137th Psalm. By, it was by virtue of their plight to exclaim in response, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? By the rivers of Babylon we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our hearts, harps upon the willows in the midst of it. And what compounded the extent of their sorrow the most was that they were very conscious of the reality that they had sinned away their day of grace and that God had come down upon them in judgment. Now then, it is into that dark and dreary situation of personal and national hopelessness that Isaiah comes with this message of consolation from God concerning His redeeming power for His people. And he begins to disclose something of God's purpose of salvation. And he begins to focus increasingly here upon a figure who begins to appear in these later chapters of Isaiah. And he is described in several different ways and places as the servant of the Lord. And here at the beginning of the passage, really verse 13 of chapter 52, he says, Behold my servant. No doubt in the first instance, that servant was a contemporary figure. In the first instance, one whom God would send to lead his people out of Babylon. But in the servant songs of Isaiah, as they have come to be called, and there are some four of them, in such chapters, especially in chapter 53, which is the fourth servant psalm, the fourth of the four, the immediate historical context here begins to recede. And it begins to fade into the background and another deliverer then emerges who, who is described in great detail as the ultimate fulfillment then of everything to which the servant of the Lord points. And is, it is principally, apparently, by his sufferings and death that he is the deliverer not only of Israel in that day, but of God's people everywhere in all times out of the bondage of their sin and out of the hopelessness of their judgment in the presence of an altogether holy God. And it is at this point that we need to ask the question which 
the Ethiopian eunuch asked of Philip there in Acts chapter 8 and verse 34, of whom does the prophet speak? Of himself or of some other man? Who is this figure being described here in Isaiah 53? That's the question of the Ethiopian treasurer. Well, let's seek to answer that answer from the scriptures itself. And so, if you would, just trace with me, if you would, through this chapter briefly, and let's consider the identity of this figure who is so magnificently set before us in terms of the Lord's servant by Isaiah. And I think it will prove very vital for us to glean from it a general overview to see who it is, this figure who is being portrayed before us in this passage by God's prophet. Because in this, the fourth servant song of Isaiah, from chapter 52, verse 13, all the way through to the end of chapter 53, the prophet tells us that he is the Lord's servant. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. Literally, he shall act wisely. He was, uh, he was one who had committed himself to serve the very purposes of the Lord among his people. And he is going to do so, you'll notice, by undergoing this severe and violent sufferings as God's servant. And after that, he's going to be raised to a place of supreme and permanent honor and glory. Kings, verse 15, going back to chapter 52, shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. He was to arise, apparently, from a poor and impoverished background a stranger to all the glory and the plenty of this world. And he's destined to be, says the prophet, this object of derision and ridicule and contempt in the eyes of men. He shall grow up before him, verse 2 of chapter 15, 53, as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. And he has no form or comeliness, no majesty. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. And then verse 3, we're told he is despised and rejected by men. And there were further instructed that he is also going to be afflicted and broken by sorrow and by every kind of distress so that it would be readily presumed by those who were observing him undergoing it that the reason for his distress and despair was because he had become the object of divine displeasure. And so profound was the agony that he was to experience that men looking upon him could come to only one conclusion. Only under the judgment of God is such sorrow to be found. And so they say, verse 4, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. 
But all of these afflictions consummating in violent death, they were indeed not a punishment, mind you, of his own sins, but a punishment born and endured in the place of the sins of others. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised or crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, the prophet says, we are healed. All this he was to bear with meekness and patience and selfless obedience. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And yet this meek and patient servant of God, though he was cut off from the land of the living, verse 8, and made his grave with the wicked, verse 9, would nonetheless one day see the fruit of the travail or the anguish of his soul. He would prolong his days, verse 10, and the pleasure of the Lord or the will of the Lord would prosper in his hand. Now there is a great mystery. For it is precisely at that point when our Lord entered into the deepest kind of anguish, having been cut off from the land of the living and stricken for the transgressions of my people, the pleasure or the will of the Lord was all along prospering in those events. In the cruelties of His affliction, the will of the Lord is prospering. And then this lowly, despised servant is to be raised to such a height of dignity and glory that the kings of earth, back to verse 15 of chapter 52, they shall stand awestruck before him. Now of whom does the prophet speak? Of whom does the prophet speak? Can there really be any doubt at this point that the ultimate figure who is herein portrayed is only in all of his fullness seen in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus of Nazareth, the man of sorrows, who entered into the transgressions of his people and who bore them in his own body on the tree, as Peter reminds us. And what puts this question really beyond all doubt whatsoever for the Christian is the words of Jesus in Luke 22 and verse 37. For I say to you that this which is written must be accomplished in me. And then he quotes Isaiah, and he was numbered with the transgressors. So Philip, beginning at the scripture, this scripture, Acts 8, verse 35, preached Jesus to him, the Ethiopian treasurer. So the question, of whom does the prophet speak? It is capable ultimately of only one answer. This figure being described here by the prophet is none other than Jesus Christ 
of Nazareth. Now please notice, there is another question to be faced with which the chapter opens. And it is this question, as it appears in the old version, the old authorized version, who has believed our report? Or as we have it in the English Standard Version, who has believed what we have heard? Who has believed our report? And that question concerns the response of man to God's revelation. The response of man to the revelation of the servant of the Lord as the man of sorrows and the Savior whom he needs. Who has believed our report? And the question is really couched in such a way in the original that the answer is almost precluded. Scarcely anyone has believed. And it's because of the simple fact, and you and I need to grasp this as we contemplate Christ crucified for our sake, that it is not natural for natural man to believe and to embrace the glorious riches bound up in the person of Christ crucified. Indeed, it's something utter, utterly alien to man's fallen nature to do so. His natural reaction is to despise and to reject Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14 we read, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, nor can he understand them for they are spiritually discerned. It says their foolishness to him. And that word in the original Greek for foolishness is where we get, is the word moria. It's where we get our English word moron. The young believer, he looks at that and he says, only a moron would believe something like that. That's the response of the natural man. Unbelief, you see. Unbelief of a real gospel of a crucified Savior standing in the room instead of sinners is not some sophisticated modern anomaly invented by intellectual people of the 21st century. No, no. Unbelief is simply the reaction of the natural man to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and the cross in all of its moving infinite beauty and glory as it falls upon the eyes of the natural man. It's like a man who is utterly blind to it. And therefore, you and I, we should never be surprised at the response of unbelief on the part of natural men. We must never say, as we sometimes find people saying as they enter the doors of this church, and they listen to men like our pastors preach, and they say, I don't know how people can darken the doors of a place like this or come under the influence of that kind of preaching and remain in unbelief. Well, it's really very simple from a biblical perspective, that until invincible grace removes the scales from the eyes of the spiritually sightless man, men will be blind to the significance of the suffering, the vicarious sin-bearing work 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. I ask you, uh, let me press this. <clears throat> let me press this upon us all just a little bit more. Even religious, church-going men and women can be utterly blind to that. They really can. Until God is pleased in His grace to remove the blinders from our eyes. And we see the sin-bearing of the Lord Jesus and all that God has provided in Him upon the cross for our desperate need. And when that happens, it is in Christ and Him crucified that you and I shall glory. And in His cross, it is there that we find our deepest joy. But deep down in the heart of the natural man, the language, he has no form or comeliness or majesty of the prophet. And that there is no beauty in him that we should desire him. And was moreover despised and rejected of men. And as one from whom men hid their faces and we esteemed him not. It is very important for us to understand you and I. That we don't try to dress up, make Jesus attractive to the natural man. He never will be as long as they remain in a natural state. We need to see him as scripture portrays him. And we can so easily fall into the snare of trying to make the Lord Jesus more attractive to carnal Regenerate, nat unregenerate natural minds, which is something that the scripture never seeks to do. Now, to be sure, there is. There is an attractiveness and an infinite beauty in the Lord Jesus. After all, the apostle Paul sets him before us. He says, this is God's indescribable gift. This is God's inexpressible gift. He says, this gift of God is beyond all telling and expression. Indeed, there is a glory in the Lord Jesus Christ as our sin bearer, which surpasses knowledge. But dear people, it is such sight and knowledge that comes only by eyes opened by the power of the grace of God. And we need to grasp that because Jesus Christ Superstar, the invention of a 1970 rock opera, is not the Jesus of biblical revelation. Not even for the far-fetched imaginative mind. Now here, as we look at what the prophet tells us, is the reason for all this blindness, we discover that it is a failure to grasp what he spells out for us here from verse 4 of chapter 53. That all of the undoubted doubt and grief and sorrow and pain and anguish and brokenness that he is the man of sorrows bore are directly and perfectly then related to our sin and our sickness, and our shame, and our guilt, and our hopelessness, and helplessness. And that is one of the reasons why we hid, as it were, our faces from Him. 
Have you ever thought that one of the reasons why people do not want to hear about Christ and Him crucified, why it is that so many people will gladly come together and hear a gospel such as, go and feed the poor, go and clothe the naked, and in God's name, we ought to be doing that. But those people do not want to hear about Christ bearing their sins. Why? Why, is, why are they hiding his, their faces from him on that account? It's not just the glory of the Lord that they're hiding their faces from. But the truth is what his death exposes to them about themselves. It reveals to them the darkness of their soul. It speaks to them of their sin and of their shame. And so we hide, as it were, our faces from him. For it is with respect to this precise issue, you find every disguise and every cloak of human pride. It's stripped away from man at the foot of the cross of the Lord Jesus. And Isaiah tells us that his sorrow and his grief, his pain and his brokenness, all of this is directly and perfectly related to our sin, to our sickness, our guilt, and our own defilement. Now notice how the prophet underscores this in verse 5. And he does so quite exquisitely, where there is this amazing fourfold description of two realities. First of all, of what sin means... And then a parallel fourfold description of Christ's sufferings in relation to that. And do you notice in each case, the prophet, as it were, moves from the, uh, the circumference or the margin of what sin is and what sin does to the center, to the center of what Christ bore. And what Christ bore is at the very center and of what he bore in his obedience even unto death. Look at me closely at the words of verse 5. It describes our sin in these terms. He was wounded or pierced for our transgressions. Transgression is the outward public act of sin. That is an area which all of men can see. It's, it, it is sin in its outward form and expression. It is this open public expression of transgression of the law of God. But then he proceeds to describe it, you'll notice, as something more in the second sentence of the verse. He was bruised or crushed for our iniquities. And iniquity is a deeper word which addresses itself to the perversity that is to the twisting, if you please, in our character, which in turn produces transgression. You see why this is so... This is not, be, this is not a beautiful sight to the unregenerate man. It's not simply when it becomes iniquity, it's not simply sin in our conduct now but it is sin in our character. Sin in our character and that which produces transgression. And then he goes on to describe it as, well, it says the chastisement for our peace 
we could really say our dispeace because the chastisement for our peace was to make peace with God. The truth is we were at dispeace with God. We're at war with God. And so peace needed to be accomplished on our behalf with God. Upon him was the chastisement for our peace or the chastisement which made us whole. And that wanting of peace is really the absence of peace with God. That is the hostility and the enmity of the human heart that is at war with God. And all of the restlessness that that brings in the flow of it. Of sin in public. Of the twisting of our character that produces it. And then to this underlying enmity and hostility against God, which is the root of it all. And deeper still, he writes, and by his stripes we are healed. That is sin, not only in transgression and iniquity and the need for the chastisement to find peace with God, but it is a deadly malady which cripples us morally and poisons us completely. And that is what Christ, as our sin-bearer, came to address in his own person upon the cross. The significance of his being wounded is this. He was wounded for our transgressions. That's the manner by which the prophet here speaks of the outward assault upon our Lord's body on the cross, the violence which he suffered on the cross, the public spectacle of his passion. He was wounded for our transgressions. Now you may know that every one of the different kinds of wounds that are known to modern science, our Lord suffered. Contused wounds, penetrated wounds, perforated wounds, every kind of wound he experienced, all of which were an assault upon his outward body. He was wounded for our transgressions, but then he moves to something deeper. He was bruised or crushed for our iniquities. Now again, that draws us further in, do you notice? It speaks of something in the nature of crushing or pressing, the crushing load of human sin that came down upon him, bearing upon the spotless Lamb of God. And so often you receive this from Scripture, that under the weight of being oppressed and afflicted, the Lord has laid on him, has laid on him that load, the load, the iniquity of us all. In that sense, Isaiah has in view when he speaks of him of being bruised or crushed for our iniquities. I think of that hymn, O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head, our load was laid on thee. But beyond that still, he comes, do you notice, from the passage to this astonishing statement here, that upon him was the chastisement of our peace or the chastisement that made us whole. What was he suffering then there upon the cross? The outward assault upon his flesh, he is wounded for our transgressions. 
that inward crushing reality of bearing our sin. He was bruised for our iniquities, but beyond that, he is chastised for our peace. Now, if you think of it, isn't that word chastisement a very striking word? The only person who can chastise is a father. A stranger may punish. Only a parent can chastise. And the word has that direct connection. It speaks of a father's act. What then is happening there upon the cross? And oh, that's where we find something infinitely more significant taking place than the mere assaults of men upon his body or even the crushing load of sin as it was laid upon him. There is something that God the Father is doing here in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And this is the quintessential essence of his suffering. That it is the Father's judgment that it is his unleashed wrath revealed from heaven upon sin. And it is presently being focused, concentrated upon the head of the spotless Lamb of God, altogether holy and without sin, but yet carrying our sin. And that's where the words of the hymn by Ann Ross Cousin really come into play. Jehovah lifted up His rod. O oh Christ, it fell on Thee. Thou wast sore stricken of God. There's not one stroke for me. That's the meaning of it all. Thy tears, Thy blood beneath it flowed. Thy bruising healeth me. Dear people, what makes sin so solemn and so serious is that it is against God. That's what makes sin so heinous. It is, it is against God. And what it called forth from Him in the nature of His wrath against sin was what constituted our Lord's deepest sufferings as He was there pinned upon the tree, that being the chastisement which he bore at the hand of his own father. And some people look at that and say, well, you're talking about heavenly parental abuse. Dear people, justice is not abuse. Justice is not abuse. It is justice. And then it says, by the instrument of these stripes, he suffered for our healing. Now here is Christ, the amazing physician, and you've heard of the physician who gives himself to the healing of his patient. And you know that many physicians have burned themselves out that others may be healed. But here is this extraordinary picture of the, of the physician who takes our sicknesses. Perhaps you know, in fact, I, I, if I were a betting man, I would wager that virtually every parent here this morning has experienced this. You see your child suffering, and perhaps suffering some, from some agonizing illness, some deadly malady, and it's so painful. And how many a mother and a father wished, if only I could take their place. 
And you could not. But the love of God so herein displayed is that the death of Jesus is that he was able to do that which we could not do for our own children. He took our infirmities and he bore our transgressions. By his stripes we are healed. His agony proved to be our healing. So very quickly, and I close with this. So here's the cross of Jesus. And in that cross, there's pardon, and there's freedom, and there is peace, and there is wholeness. And out of all of this, Isaiah says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It was the Lord's will to bruise him. He has put him to grief. And I ask this question, have any ears ever heard a greater witness to the love of God than that? It was the will of the Lord to bruise him. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall see his offspring. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, know this. You this morning are his seed. You are his offspring. You are the product of the travail of his soul. You are here because he suffered in your room instead. He shall see the labor or the travail of his soul and be satisfied. You are the fruit of the travail of his soul. And the great issue this morning is not whether you're satisfied with Jesus, but is Jesus satisfied in you? May God grant that we may live for the satisfaction of such a Savior. Let's pray.